Welcome to Daily Drive for Thursday, August 17th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, a report says the economic impact of a UAW strike could be staggering. Another potential bid for U.S. Steel adds to the rapidly evolving saga, the latest coming up. And a study finds new vehicle safety technology could prevent nearly 250,000 deaths and millions of crashes in coming years. Plus, we'll take a look at this year's Automotive News Pace and Pace Pilot Award finalists with Director of Judging, Doug Ober. We're really interested in that enabling innovation, not the fact that they created a great new widget. I mean, that's wonderful. We, we all love that. But what we want to know is what was behind the creation of the great new widget, and is that sustainable, and is that applicable across other widgets? Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. A strike by the UAW against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis could have a huge economic impact. Analysis released today by the Anderson Economic Group shows a 10-day strike against the Detroit Three would result in more than $5 billion in economic losses. That includes wage losses of nearly $800 million and manufacturer losses of $1.2 billion, plus the financial hit to automotive suppliers, dealers, and the industry at large. A strike is seen as more likely as the September 14th contract expiration draws near, and negotiations between the sides appear to be making little progress. Another day, another story on U.S. Steel and a potential buyout. This time, the world's second largest steel maker, ArcelorMittal, is considering an offer. That's according to reporting from Reuters. ArcelorMittal is discussing a possible offer with its investment bankers, though there is no certainty the company will press ahead. If ArcelorMittal does launch a bid, it could escalate a bidding war. Cleveland Cliffs and Esmark have already made offers for more than $7 billion. The United Steelworkers Union supports Cleveland Cliffs' bid, but U.S. Steel called it unreasonable. U.S. Steel is a major supplier for automakers. Stellantis is investing more than $100 million in a California green lithium project. The automaker's investment will help make its EVs eligible for consumer purchase incentives under the Federal Inflation Reduction Act. Meanwhile, Stellantis expects recycling parts will help it reach sustainability goals and generate revenue, and it wants suppliers to help. The automaker expects to have 40% green materials in its vehicles by 2030, up from 15% today. The automaker expects to bring in more than $2 billion from the so-called circular economy business in 2030. And advanced driver assistance systems could prevent nearly 250,000 U.S. road deaths over the next 30 years. That's according to a study funded by the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety. The technology includes automatic emergency braking and blind spot alerts. Research has projected that the technology would also prevent about 37 million crashes and 14 million injuries from 2021 to 2050. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, the bidding war for U.S. Steel has kind of come out of left field. Why is that? Yeah, you know, it's a reasonably healthy company. They're still profitable and they have a key position serving the North American auto industry, which is growing and healthy. But it's down a little. Its revenues are down, its profits are down, and most importantly, its stock price is down by about a third from its recent high. 
So some of its stronger competitors are eyeing a chance to get their hands on some profitable assets at a discount. Once one gets going, then others jump in, and now we've got a bidding war. That makes sense. Coming up, we'll look at the big trends and takeaways from this year's Automotive News Pace and Pace Pilot finalists. That's next on Daily Drive. The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating. But is it enough? This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that. Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. My team and I went to each car company separately. We sat down and we said, you know, what can you do? What you cannot do? How much time you need? How much it's gonna cost you? And that pay off big time. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is is GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they come around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero. Available wherever you get your podcasts starting September 11th. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. Automotive News Pace Awards, now in their 29th year, are given to automotive suppliers for notable technological innovations that have reached the commercial market. This year's 34 Pace finalists and 22 Pace Pilot finalists are being recognized for technical solutions for electric vehicles, as well as for innovations in lightweighting, coating processes, and vehicle connectivity. We'll announce award winners at a ceremony next year, but for now, I spoke with PACE Director of Judging, Doug Ober, about this year's class of finalists. Doug Ober, welcome back to Daily Drive. Thank you. Nice to be here. You know, just this week, we announced the PACE finalists and PACE pilot finalists. Uh, describe briefly, if you would, the, the judging process. How many judges are there? Are they the same for PACE and PACE pilot? They're not. We have 21 PACE judges, and for PACE Pilot, we have 11 judges. Uh, the judges for PACE Pilot are geared more towards laboratory, uh, venture capital, uh, startup backgrounds, because we're looking for technology that's not yet been commercialized. So we want judges that are familiar with working with startups like that. PACE, because the requirement is that you have a commercialized product or innovation has been commercialized by an OEM, we have a different mix of judges uh, and we have slightly more, the judging process is a little more in-depth on, on the PACE side of things. And so it's difficult to do too many of those. The site visit on PACE typically takes four hours to six hours. On PACE Pilot, it's strictly limited to an hour. And so as a result of that, the, the workload, the involvement is much greater. And so we spread it over a wider base. Are the site visits in person or are they virtual? Traditionally, they've been in person. 
although with COVID we had to switch to a, a virtual site visit. Um, I think this year we're going to continue virtual site visits for PACE and PACE Pilot. Hopefully next year we'll be back to in-person site visits for PACE, although PACE Pilot has always been virtual and it is the intention to remain virtual. Tell me about the technology. We've got, you know, uh, 34 PACE finalists, 22 PACE pilot finalists. Um, what kind of trends are you seeing? I'm, it looks to me like a lot of EV technologies, but also other forms of power, including hydrogen fuel cells and even diesel. Yeah, so that's the funny thing. You know, the, the, the mega trend, if you will, the electrification, the computerization, the software-defined vehicles, that those mega trends are really continuing. And we've seen a number of really significant innovations this year in battery technology, lightweighting, electrification, software, but a very interesting trend that we're continuing to see grow is what I call the, the greening of the transportation section sector, and that's really recycling and sustainability. We've got a number of really Uh, interesting innovations this year that deal with interior and exterior parts. We have manufacturing applications that use AI to increase sustainability. The assembly application, we have a new paint shop application this year that uh, changes the paints quite a bit. We're seeing lower carbon footprints, better performance, uh, lower costs, and interestingly, improved margins both for the suppliers and the OEMs. So it's kind of a win-win situation. I would say this year, the sustainability recycling, if you will, category, and we don't have a category, but if you were to, to you know, look at uh, innovations that fall into certain categories, I would say that's at least a quarter of our finalists this year. And that's probably an all-time high. I, I have to admit that Uh, Some of these, just by looking at the names of the products, I can't tell what they are. I can't even tell what part of the car they're in. (laughs) Yeah, that, yes. Yeah, so so as as judges, we, that's one of our first problems. It depends if the application is written by an engineer or whether the marketing folks. And so um, for certain titles of, of the applications, you can tell it's it's the greatest thing since sliced bread and it's going to change the world as we know it. That's typically come out of the marketing side of an organization. The one that talks about some third level effect uh, with a combination of metals and plastic, that's usually an engineer. So we we see them all. We, you know, we have to read the application. Um, and that's one of the reasons we do the site visits, because sometimes the the application they concentrate on the product or let's call it the output but not the innovation that enabled the output and we're really interested in that enabling innovation not the fact that they created a great new widget i mean that's wonderful we we all love that but what we want to know is what was behind the creation of the great new widget and is that sustainable and is that applicable across other widgets and those typically are what become pace winners versus finalists. It's the ones that have the ability to take the innovation and run with it and changes many things of their organization and across the industry. Now, it's really interesting in that process. I'm One of the things I'm wondering that you as a judge who's seen these in a lot more detail, is there 
a difference in the types of technologies between the pace finalists and the pace pilot finalists because they're on different timeframes? To answer your question bluntly, no, not really. Yeah. Uh, the big difference is, you know, pace takes a good idea and turns it and, and rewards it for actually having been adopted and in commercial production. A lot of good ideas don't, don't see the light of day. They either have cost issues, they have manufacturability issues, the technology leapfrogs them while they're developing. And, and so Pace Pilot is in the same areas of lightweighting, electrification, software, sustainability. We see the same mega trends, but whether or not they actually make it to the light of day is, is another story. But, but they deserve recognition for driving the industry along those lines. And, you know, so we have a good class this year in Pace Pilot and an excellent class in Pace. So I'm really excited about the upcoming site visits for what I call the class of 2024. <laughs> One of the things we talked about uh, with the judges, uh, was it uh, just in recent weeks, was that for some nominees, some entries, it was hard for them to tell whether they belonged in Pace Pilot or whether they belonged in a PACE award. How do, you, how do you handle cases like that? We try to head them off at the pass. We try to make sure that the application clearly explains the difference between the two. But sometimes the applicant, English isn't their first language. Somebody misreads it, and we get an application in the wrong bucket, if you will. And so if it's early enough in the process, we go back to them and, and ask them to resubmit. Uh, and the reason I say that, why we don't just move it from one bucket to the other on our own is because the applications are slightly different and ask for different information. And so if the applicant sends in their application before the deadline, uh, hint, 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 um, <laughs> we, we have the opportunity to go back to them. But unfortunately, we get a a fair number of applications that come in at the deadline or even a few days after the deadline. And so in those instances, all we can do is send it back to them and tell them to resubmit the following year. So next you've got the site visits and then uh, you have sort of a, a complicated or interesting process of uh, deciding as, uh, as judges. I guess it's sort of more like a jury process than just like a straight vote. Describe that a little if you could. Sure. Um, so the way the process works is that we send judging pairs to each of the finalists. And the judging pairs, depending on whether it's Pace Pilot or Pace, write up a, a, a site report, if you will. The site reports are then submitted to all of the entire judging panels. And the judging panels meet in person. Uh, and we discuss everything single finalists having each read all of the site visits. We try to achieve consensus. Um, it's really not meant to be a straight up and down vote. And I would say in most of the instances, we, can we achieve consensus. And what is consensus? I'd probably say 66, 66 and a two thirds percent vote is, a, is consensus, right? It, we never get 100% of the people, the judges voting for everything, but we generally look to achieve consensus. And so the, the site visit judges actually serve sort of two roles. One, they're obviously investigating the applicant's claims and, and evaluating the technology, but they're also then turning around and 
representing them to a larger group that didn't have the opportunity to be there. And that larger group asks the site visit judges a lot of questions. We, we, we try to send them ahead of time as well to have them forearmed, but new questions are arising. So it's a what I would call a vigorous discussion that takes quite a while. We spend over two days at it. And uh, the outcome is the, the winners, if you will. Uh, traditionally, the winners are approximately a third of the finalists. You know, every year it varies, plus or minus, depending on the strength of the class. But it's approximately a third end up getting an award at the, getting a PACE award at the, or a PACE pilot award at the award ceremony uh, in the spring in Detroit. Well, Doug, thank you so much for explaining the process and uh, where we are in the in the flow this year. And thanks for all of your hard work and all the other judges, their hard work. And we look forward to seeing you all in the spring when uh, when the trophies get handed out. Thank you very much. And I look forward to uh, to seeing you there as well. You can see the entire list of Pace Award and Pace Pilot finalists at autonews.com. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News Coordinating Producer Jake Neer and Alicia Anderson. Today's episode included reporting from our own Kurt Nagel, John Irwin, Vince Bond Jr., Lindsey Chappell, and Jerry Hirsch. You can get the latest news on UAW, Detroit 3 negotiations, automaker investments, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. Come back tomorrow for a conversation about the practice of delivering vehicles to buyers before they have financing locked in called spot deliveries. We'll look at whether the FTC might crack down on it. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.